BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this first Tuesday, September 5th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back an advocate for the people of Chicago and a friend of the Ben Jarofsky show. Ben's talking with Denali Dasgupta. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. You want to know where to go. You want to know what to do, what to eat, what to drink. You got questions? ChicagoReader.com has got your answers. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, he's there too. Just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A. V is in victory. S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Nothing Changes Tuesday, and here's why. It's because nothing ever changes, ladies and gentlemen. Let me give you an example. I got an email this weekend uh, from a listener to this show. I want to give her a shout-out. She's a very attentive listener, uh, always sending me stuff that, I, that she thinks I need to know to go about my life as an observer of what's happening in the city of Chicago and the, uh, the United States and the whole entire world. But I don't think she wants her name used. I'll just call her Sue. Anyway, so uh, Sue sent me this article from SR, actually a column from 1991. I don't even know if my distinguished guest, uh, Denali, was born then. She was probably just, no, she was born, but she was just like a little thing or something back in 1991. 1991, ladies and gentlemen, I was already writing columns with Chicago Reader. Sunrise, sunset. Uh, Anyway, it's a column about Mayor Daly's proposal to close mental health clinics in the city of Chicago. Oh my God, nothing ever changes. There were 18 in those days and he was, he didn't actually come on and close them in this budget. He kind of like was one of those trial balloons. He let sort of let people get the sense that he was going to close them just to sort of gauge the reaction. And there was a reaction. I completely forgotten this, ladies and gentlemen, until Sue sent me uh, the uh, column. I completely forgot this chapter in Chicago politics, but it's classic on several fronts. Number one, the front of privatizing city services. Uh, Daly hit the ground running on this. He didn't really pick up full speed and acceleration until he got to the next century uh, when he started selling off various you know, city assets like the Skyway and the parking meters and the downtown garages. And for a while, he was talking about the waterworks. Uh, and then, you know, he was going to privatize the parks, essentially, by bringing the Olympics in there, take, t- turning our parks into a playground for the Olympics. Uh, Brendan Schiller, who comes on the show, has this whole theory about Mayor Daley that he first he spent the first 10 years gathering power, uh, just getting control of the entity known as the city of Chicago so that in the 21st century, at the beginning of this century, he could then really take charge and sell everything off 
Uh, that's the Brendan uh, Schiller theory anyway. But back in 1991, it was kind of a radical idea uh, to close the mental health clinics. His father, Daddy Daly, had opened the mental health clinics as part of an effort in the 1960s uh, to deal with uh, people who were coming when we were deinstitutionalizing mental health facilities where people were held, brought them back to the city of Chicago. So we had neighborhood clinics that provided around-the-clock treatment. If you're, like, losing your mind, you could go in there, and there was a therapist who would listen to you. Man, we could use a lot of those today. Anyway, so there, uh, in anticipation of daily trying to close these clinics, uh, the clinic uh, operators and supporters reached out to people like me, you know, sympathetic reporters who might write stories uh, saying this would be a really bad idea in the hopes that the, the publicity would force daily to back off. I can't say that my little column alone forced Daly to back off. I think there were greater forces at play, but he did back off at this moment. Mayor Ron picked up the torch, so to speak, years later and closed six of them. But there's one part of this uh, essay that, I mean, uh, just made me laugh out loud. This is so quintessential daily, not just the move to privatize the health clinics, but just the way daily deals and his people deal with uh, protesters. So uh, <laughs> the protester showed up at City Hall to demand a meeting with Daly. What a joke. You're just going to demand a meeting with Daly? What? You think you're like a you think you're like a, a, a top law firm in the city of Chicago? You're just going to walk in and see the mayor of the city of Chicago? You think you're a billionaire? Uh, so here's a quote from the organizer. Quote, we wanted to, Daly to see our flyer, but the policeman outside the mayor's off, office told us Daly was on vacation. We asked to see an aide. The cop said, the mayor doesn't have any aides. We said, how about a secretary? The cop said, the secretary types and doesn't talk to anyone. Then he ushered us out of the office. The next day, however, this activist got the meeting she had been pleading for, begging for, with the city health commissioner. Isn't that funny how it works? That's so classic daily. Just that sarcastic cop outside of city hall, dispatching, just get out of here. <laughs> the secretary type, she doesn't talk to people like you. The mayor doesn't have AIDS. And then the next day, you get the call from the commissioner, who's pretty grumpy, because probably daily got on the phone himself and said, do something about this. Just get it out of my office. That is how Mayor Richard M. Daly ran the city of Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. He didn't want he didn't want to give people the idea that could, they could affect, you know, his control of the city. But effectively, he did allow them a little control of the city. And so then the people were so grateful that Daly got the health commissioner to meet with them that they loved him and voted him for years, and we'd probably still be voting for him had he not decided to walk away. Anyway, the more things uh, change, the more they stay the same. They're still closing services. They're still privatizing services. Mayor Brandon Johnson's trying to deal with this right now uh, as, he be, as he takes office, but he's 100 days into his office as the movement mayor. He's the movement mayor in a city that has decided they're moving away from public service. And uh, they're just going to have to deal with it. The new mayor is going to have to deal with it while everybody says, how much money is that going to cost? That's the other funny thing. They were talking about saving money uh, <laughs> on mental health. Even in 1991, we're going to save money by closing these clinics. Yeah, how much money are you saving with like, just people losing their minds in Chicago? Ever think of that?
And without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest, Denali Dasgupta, who's been very patiently waiting to come in and address these issues. Denali, first of all, welcome back, Cotter. Welcome back to my humble little show. And uh, it's good to see your smiling face. Were, were you active in politics in 1991, just out of curious curiosity? I, so, you know, in, Ben, I'm like super honest with you all the time. I believe 1991 was when I had my like two week Republican phase. Um, but it, in in my defense, I was um, maybe about eight or nine years old and I was very, very caught up in um, cable news and Gulf War watch. Um, it was about two weeks, got out of my system, um, and, you know, have, have never, have never gone back since, um, to cable news or, or Republicanism. But, you know, in those early days, we were just watching the war on TV. Um, and it was not unremarked upon the way it is now that we watch so many things on our television and we consume it from a distance. We do this nice dehumanizing thing that, that, you know, generations of people now have grown up with. I never had to feel that shift in them. Um, that's that's probably what I was doing in 1991. And a uh, lot of phonics. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I, I do remember very much. I remember where I was uh, when the bomb started falling in 1991. I was Gloria Chevrolet. Uh, she was running for alderman. And I was doing a story about her uh, aldermanic campaign. I remember walking door to door with her as part of that story. She was running the 31st Ward. And we went to a door and bombs have started falling. Uh, in Iraq, and I was like, "Wow, man, we're at war." Always blows my mind when the United States goes to war. I've lived through so many of them. All right, let's um, let's shift gears a little bit. We're not going uh, to talk about things in 1991 anymore. No, but we are. We are because nothing changes Tuesday. When I came on your show before, we talked about the budget from that year. We were talking about Paul Dallas. We talked about privatization. We talked about the long arc. You know the 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 ivy that has grown from those seeds of that budget. Um, all of the things, um, how it's changed people's minds, how it changed their perception about the city and what we owe people, how it's changed the way we do business, how it's changed what we think the public sector does. Um, so we may end up hopping in the wayback machine to the early '90s a couple of times. Yeah, I know. It, nothing ever changes when Ben and Denali have a conversation. That's, uh, <laughs> well, it's good. Each each show, you move me further into the future because I feel like I was in the 70s for kind of a while, but we've moved to the 90s. You know, we're we're getting there. All right. You were the one who suggested this uh, topic, and I eagerly agreed that we should uh, explore it. And it has to do with asylum seekers coming to Chicago, being bussed or flown into Chicago from Texas. It is a quote unquote crisis. And um, it's a crisis that Mayor Brandon Johnson has inherited and has to figure out something, uh, has to figure out what to do about it. And it's very clear that he's going to need federal assistance. Uh, you hear that, President Joe Biden? He's going to need federal. You want to come here uh, next year for the convention? Well, you might send some money right now to help uh, the city of Chicago deal with this right this issue. Okay. When we started talking about this uh, this morning before uh, the show, you said something that I said is a really great question. I'm going to read, to, read it to you, uh, and I would love to hear you explore it. We have to decide who these people are to us. 13,500 or so estimated asylum seekers have been uh, bussed or flown into Chicago. The city at the moment clearly doesn't know uh, where they will be housed, where they will live. Uh, it's figuring things out on the go. Uh, it's called a crisis. 
It's not viewed as an opportunity. That is for certain. And when you said that, I said, wow, explore that on the mic. What do you mean by we have to figure out who these people are to us? Okay. So um, we should at some point go and dig into what we what we define as a crisis and what we mean, because crisis and opportunity are kind of two sides of the same coin, sometimes cynically, sometimes hopefully. Um, I mean, if we want to go back to 70s and 80s, uh, rebellions begin in hope. I think that's from Star Wars or what part of the Star Wars franchise. We have to think about what changes, right? A crisis is a moment where something breaks. And so the question that I'm asking about who who are these people to us, I'll tell you who they are to me right now. So because I've been in between, um, you know, stuff, I'm not working right now, but I start my new job on Monday. I've been organizing with the Community Care Collaborative in 33rd Ward, which is doing phenomenal work, um, just incredible work. Some of the best work that I've seen both in asking really hard and critical questions, but also sort of showing up and delivering services, supporting folks who are in the police stations and at the shelters and respites. So currently there are between 15 and 1600 people sleeping at police stations in the city of Chicago, inside and outside. Um, I believe at the station that, you know, I support and we can talk about what that support entails as we talk about what we have to do as a city, as private citizens and as a public sector. Um, there's about 56 people and that's really low. And so if you've ever been in the lobby of a Chicago police station, they're all roughly built the same way. You can imagine 56 people and their possessions and their, their bedding in that space. Um, you know, again, the first buses came about a year ago and people have been in the police stations for a while. And when I first started doing this, as we were putting systems together, my job was essentially, I had a ton of baby clothes in my house because I had young children. And so the very first people that I met were living in police stations, were expectant mothers who I was handing maternity clothes off to, or families with children very, very similar in age to my own. And I think in this country, right, we talked about deinstitutionalization and how after deinstitutionalization happened, we started to see street homelessness in a different way. There have been periods of visible homelessness in this country. Deinstitutionalization was one of them. The Great Depression was another. And how we see these people, right, the people in front of us, do we want to, right, like you think about the Dust Bowl, right, um, you know, the Joads traveling across country, hobo culture. The goal was to move people along as quickly as possible because they were trouble, right? You think about deinstitutionalization. Some of that was a medicalized nature of containment. We feel bad for people, but we're also afraid of them. I want to talk about how their unpredictability or their disability is, is threatening to us. There's individuals because, you know, oh man, will someone attack me on the street or our way of life because now they're not contained anymore. And then last time I was on the show, we talked about Lakeview has fallen. We've talked about our own young people in the city, right? People who we say, you know, how do we balance supporting them and containing them? And, and my work over, you know, many years with young people 16 to 24 and the organizations, public and community-based that support them, this question comes up again and again. And every so often a Rahm Emanuel or a Lori Lightfoot will have this flash of inspiration and say, let's keep them productively occupied. Go back to the 90s, right? That was the story of welfare reform too. And when you look at a group of human beings and you say, we've got to keep them productively occupied, you set up a power dynamic and a relationship, an expectation of what they will not do if they are productively occupied. You say, we decide what's productive. And so all of these things swirling around in my mind, the people that I see, you know, 
either supporting, um, receiving the support, read about, hear about people who are working for the city, people who are volunteering, people in the faith community. I think that we rarely have this conversation about like what's going to happen, right? What do we hope will happen to these people we encounter? Are these our new neighbors? And going back to your opportunity idea, right? If this is the moment the door opens, if this is Ellis Island, if this is the great migration, if this is a massive spatial reshaping of our city and our country, that looks really, really different than there's a bunch of people here and we don't know who they are and we need to keep them contained or we'll show Texas uh, how big our hearts are or any number of other stories that we can tell ourselves. And it seems a little bit kind of out there for us to talk about, well, what's going to be the story? But I think we have to answer that question because you see people working together in coalition and you'll have this moment where, you know, you'll say, well, I think this is the right thing to do. And they'll say, this is the right thing to do. And, and the philosophical underpinning will come up and you'll say, whoa, like I would, you know, a great example is like, I would never share anybody's private information um, with another institution or something if I've collected it for my purposes as a volunteer. I don't want to know people's last names, right? I maybe just want to know enough about what they look like and where they're, they're sleeping so I can bring them some clean underwear. Um, but that is because, right, we're dealing with ice. We're dealing with all of these other things. And so we have to be really thoughtful about how we relate. And so even these little micro decisions, they flow down from, you know, what, we, what relationships we're building with folks, right? Because these are people. They're not things, right? So I guess my question to you, Ben, is um, who who are the, you know, 13,500 recently arrived Chicagoans to you other than, you know, maybe people you can talk to the Bulls about, talk about the Bulls to? I, uh, I don't know if there's any Bulls fans uh, among them. You could uh, make that happen. <laughs> I, I could convert them. Uh, maybe they're probably soccer fans uh, first uh, before they're basketball fans. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, Silly me, I, I, I looked at it this way from the outset. Chicago's population has fallen. I've been reading article after article for the last three years, maybe beyond the, uh, before that. Uh, this was sort of the, the main theme of the Republicans is that uh, the policies of Democrats in Chicago and Illinois have driven people out of Chicago and Illinois. And uh, it's a sign of the unhealthiness of Chicago and Illinois. So we had this conversation with demographers, you know, what was causing the movements of people from Chicago was as dramatic and drastic uh, as the uh, Republicans were saying. Uh, what Was it linked to specific policies of the city, et cetera, and so forth? But one thing was certain was like the, the general tone of the, of the discussion was it's unhealthy for the city of Chicago to be losing population. Now, all of a sudden, Chicago is gaining population because the governor of Texas was putting asylum seekers on buses and planes and sending them to Chicago. My first thought was, oh, it's a good thing, right? I mean, we were losing people. We said that was a bad thing. Like I've been writing articles. There's not enough people to work in the in the restaurants. I've been doing be articles like that in Cranes and the Chicago Business, Chicago Tribune Business. I'm just telling you what's in the paper, Denali. I'm not making this stuff up. There's not enough. They would interview Cranes would like interview some restaurant guy. I don't have enough people to work in my restaurant. It's really a crisis. Well, here, we, here you go. So now it's like a crisis. 
Okay, so, but so you can't talk about demography with me without expecting me to be like a tiny bit pedantic. And when you say um, losing population, it means yes. net loss year to year. Because when we say losing, everybody thinks, you know, people are fleeing for the border. Different birth cohorts are different size. People have fewer kids. Not everyone is a maniac like me, um, you know, just wanting to have all the children in the world. Um, but there are fewer people being born. There are fewer people migrating in. And there are fewer people immigrating in. Right. And that's what it is. Right. So we're going to talk a lot about system dynamics, both in how they're managing the crisis for the city, but also talk about population. And so the easiest model people think about is like a bathtub. Right. You're filling a bathtub and then, you know, at some point the bathtub is draining. We have births and people moving in and then we got people moving out. And most people who move out of the city move to the region. They move to the suburbs. And some of that is they want bigger houses. They want lower taxes. They want whatever. But in some ways, they're still connected to the economy of our city. and. I think it's important to not have, I don't want to call it like a moral panic, but like a demographic panic, which is always a cousin to a eugenic panic about um, losing people or, or what's happening. But yes, the population is declining. There's an opportunity for more people to come in. We want to think about some of the big times that lots of people have come in and reshaped our city, turn of the century, middle of the century. And then one thing that people don't really talk about, but that has really reshaped the demographics visibly of the city of Chicago and actually did a lot with our school enrollment, is there's a massive wave of immigration in the 1990s. And then there was a baby boom that followed that when those folks had kids. So maybe this is part two of that wave. I don't know. Whatever it is, I hear what you're saying. These folks could be our future neighbors. So, you know, fast forward, let's say 15 years. Uh, what would you want to see in a vital city that shows that we've succeeded at welcoming in, you know, let's say it's 13,000 now, it could be 15, 20,000 people, whatever that, whatever that volume of people is, what does success look like to you? Well, be a sign that uh, the, the new residents are more or less integrated into the larger economy, the city of Chicago, that they have jobs, that they're productive citizens. Uh, and uh, part of the process is, or I realize, is that uh, if they follow the example of the people who came before them, they'll leave Chicago because that's a trend that happens. You know, immigrants come to the city, they get settled in the city, they use the city as that port of entry. And then as soon as they get a little money saved up, boom, to the suburbs they go. Uh, it, <laughs> you really doesn't change from one uh, ethnic group to the other. That's one thing they ethnic groups have in common. They lead to the suburbs. So the, I wait for that shoe to drop as well. But in the meantime, uh, I view this as an opportunity for the city of Chicago to, quote, unquote, fill in the gaps, if you will. And uh, I do believe there's opportunity in the city. I believe there's opportunity in the city of Chicago to meet the needs of the new people. I don't understand why it's not all hands on deck going to black neighborhoods in the city of Chicago where there's high unemployment rate and going, all right, we need people to help settle the new people coming to Chicago. Instead, you got the black community of Chicago at odds with the new residents of Chicago. So it's like blacks and Hispanics fighting again. That's been going on since the daily years, by the way. Uh, and uh, as opposed to an opportunity for everybody. So at the risk of being called naive i view this as an opportunity but it costs money and so i like to point out and i pointed this out the last time on the sh you were on the show so nothing ever changes on this front <laughs> when it came to bringing amazon to town we were how many billions was rom 
and Ron, were Ram and Ronner ready to commit? How much valuable land were they willing to commit? How many times did they and their mouthpieces and the Tribune and the Cranes tell us what a great opportunity this was? So I do not understand why that's a great opportunity and this is a crisis. I, I need to I need help with that. I'm going to ask Mayor Johnson that tonight, you know, and see what kind of answer I get. But I remember Denali. You know, all the politicians coming before my microphone to tell me what a great opportunity. I'd be complaining about the Amazon deal. And they go, no, Ben, you don't understand. It's going to put people to work. Well, why won't this put people to work? <laughs> why is it different, a different attitude when it's people from Venezuela or people from Mexico coming to Chicago? I, help me, Denali. You're wiser than I am. You can help me on this. I'm struggling with this. Why is one thing a crisis and the other thing an opportunity? Why is one thing something we welcome and the other thing is something we shun? Because we haven't decided what's happening. And so, again, this dance of we are going to bring people in, but we're going to contain them. We need to keep tabs on them. It's not welcoming people in with full citizenship and rights and expecting them to participate. There's an uneasy tension between being a welcoming city and making sure the people you're welcoming are being contained, surveilled, whatever. At night, they go somewhere. They're not out roaming the streets, right? It's really important. The deal that, you know, it's, it's an implicit deal that the government is cutting with the people of Chicago to say, don't worry. We're going to bring people in to the city and we're all going to feel good about it, but we're still going to keep tabs on them and we're still going to keep them contained. And we're going to decide what neighborhoods they go to and we're going to decide where they go and we're going to keep them sleeping, you know, even their, you know, eight month old babies under the surveillance of the Chicago Police Department. Because that's a deal that we've made so that you'll continue to support us because it feels good to be a welcoming city, but it is hard to truly welcome people. And yeah. over time, we've gotten a lot better at using market forces, um, housing codes, neighborhood stuff, all these subtle dynamics of segregation. We are experts in the city of Chicago at using soft power to keep each other at arm's length. And this is no different. This is a deal. And so I think if we have this conversation, if these folks are going to be our neighbors, then we're going to want to go meet them right away and find out what's up with them, right? And wow. if there's something else at play, if we're holding them, for the federal government, if we are playing hot potato with them and Greg Abbott, that's a very different story. And I, I will tell you that a lot of the people that, that I spend my day texting with don't believe that. They will walk off the job if we're just here to be an extension of the Department of Homeland Security. Wait, what do you mean by that last point? So, OK, so if we're here, right, the, the, the apparatus that's holding folks. So right now we have some folks have, you know, so I talked to the principal at the school that a lot of the students who are staying where we are are going. And there's a lot of families who are recent migrants who uh, came here and are staying with family members or are, are living in the community right now. They're living in apartments. But this time it's different because they're enrolling folks who are living in temporary shelters. Like they have not, these folks have not made it into the housing stock of the city of Chicago. Unlike the Great Migration where people showed up and houses and apartments were totally subdivided, unlike you know the turn of the century immigration, we have what is it, um, you know, of the 13,500 people, about 6,600 in shelters, 15 to 1,600 in police stations, another four to 500 at the airport, mm. right? Like this is not resettling people, this is hanging no. on to them. Yeah. So we're hanging on to them to buy time. What are we buying time for? Yeah. Yeah. 
And one thing that's really critical, again, we talk about system dynamics and that bathtub analogy, um, the population in stations has doubled over the last month. Biologists love looking at doubling rates. So we are pushed, we are stretched. What have we bought time to do? What bigger middle and long-term changes have we done and what decisions have we made? It is really hard for the mayor that one year of folks being bused into the city, um, you know, which started before he even announced his campaign, rolls up at his 100 days in office. But yeah. I mean, that's just how it works. Yeah. And and let's just think about that, ladies and gentlemen. You're, that's a good point. The movement, I always talk about the movement that uh, launched Brandon Johnson's campaign, the movement that he comes from, wasn't even addressing this issue when he decided to run for office. This was not a, a driving issue in the city of Chicago. It's one that is a reality right now that Mayor Johnson has to deal with. And he has to deal with it uh, in the context of all these other demands and issues that people in the movement have been making for years that they have driven the the uh, Brandon Johnson, uh, the campaign that put him in the office. So I understand it's it's a challenge for Brandon. But I mean, look, he ran on Chicago for the people, Chicago for the many. And when you talk about an opportunity, right, you, you can change yourself, you can change the game. This could be the opportunity to change the game, to roll back the privatization of, of public services, to say that this is the baseline expectation for quality of life of everyone in Chicago. Public education, good housing, safe neighborhoods. I mean, all of this was part of the campaign. And this is just a really, really hard first test. I mean, maybe it's not a first test. Maybe this is the moment where you say, okay, there's enough money coming in from the feds and the states. There's enough of a crisis atmosphere that we have the ability to change policy, but we need a vision here. And we can only warehouse people for so long. Yeah. And warehousing people is not an end game. I mean, it is an end game, right? It's how, uh, you know, you look at the deinstitutionalization, all these people left. And then within, um, you know, 10 years, the institutional population in this country was close to where it was before because we just incarcerated everybody. So we don't want to play that game from saying, OK, they we're just shuffling people around from containment to containment. What's going to happen? Right. Where is that? You know, where are those doorways between you're here temporarily, you're sleeping on the floor at the airport and, you know, you're part of our community, you're our neighbor. Yeah. For me, one thing that I've seen is that it's it's school. Right. Kids are coming and they're enrolling in school. It's work. There are a lot of people who go work a job all day and then go and sleep on the floor of a police station, regardless of what's happening with work permits, because we know that not everybody in this city is working over the table, right, is working legally. And that happened in the 1990s, too, when a lot of people came. And there were lots of, of terrible things that happened and continue to happen structurally in the employment market um, that have prevented people from doing well. But the point is that people are still hustling. So, all right, I just want to remind everybody that the first time Denali came on this show, she was a candidate for all the women in the 39th Ward, which is on the northwest side of Chicago. I do not recall this being an issue that we discussed uh, in that first interview that we did when you were a candidate, uh, Denali. You did not win uh, that election. I didn't? No. <laughs> That's why you keep coming on my show. When they win, they go, Ben, I'm so busy. I, I don't have time to do anything anymore. Um well, so I will say at my campaign launch, we did have a table where we collected supplies um, for migrants because one of the first places that people were coming and being processed was North Park Village, which we had our campaign launch at the North Park Village Nature Center. So we saw this 
we saw a tiny little sliver of this right when it first started happening. But then it was very quiet for a long time. And then, you know, um, because again, part of this, this network, you hear there's two buses leaving from Brownsville today. There's this many, there's this many. What's happened in the last, oh God, maybe it's the last month or the last couple of weeks. I saw this in one of the stories. I can't remember if it was the Trib or the Sun-Times. There's a charity in Texas that's now fundraising to buy people plane tickets. Um, So, you know, we are, I don't want to say we're at capacity. Right. Because I don't think a city can be at capacity. But what's happening again in that bathtub analogy is someone's turned both the taps on. And what we do not want is water spilling out over the sides. Right. We don't want to lose people. We don't want people to get hurt. We don't want to be sheltering people in unsafe and inhumane conditions. We want to be doing better than at least as well as humanitarian efforts. And I don't think we're doing that right now. No, we're not. And and, and it comes down to the point uh, that the Nali has made several times. Uh, the city of Chicago, I don't know if it's capable of, of reaching a, a consensus on this point, has not determined whether this is a crisis or an opportunity, has not determined as if this is a momentary uh, challenge that requires warehousing and then quiet distribution or moving out of Chicago and an ongoing program to welcome people to Chicago and use the new people to build Chicago. It hasn't decided that yet. And right now it's acting as though it's a crisis. We're warehousing people. We just got, we'll put, we'll put them in police stations uh, and at O'Hare until we figure out what to do with them. And that may be getting them on a bus and sending them elsewhere. Uh, and I don't know if Chicago will ever reach a consensus on this. I will point out that this is not being done in the abstract. This is done in with a political backdrop. And that political backdrop is one in which uh, MAGA, this is true on every single issue, is trying to inflame the situation as much as they can to get votes. And so your favorite uh, presidential candidate came to Chicago several months ago. Chris Christie? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was just teasing when I said that because I wanted to see your face no, drop. I, 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 I know who you're talking about. But, you know, uh, Mr. Yeah. Ramaswamy came to Chicago uh, several months ago. And when he came, He's a billion nobody... of us, Ben. We have a lot of different viewpoints on, on things. And I called my mother and I was like, oh, God, I can't believe there's two Indian people on the stage here. We're <laughs> never going to fucking live this down. No, Ramon Hussein was funny on the weekend. She goes, they put them right next to each other in the debate. Like, could you separate them? Like, this is the Indian-American side of the debate. They put them, like, right next. I don't even think it was alphabetical. Anyway, he came to town, and he was playing it. He went to. He was very proud of this. He went to the south side of Chicago, and he tried to stir things up, uh, and hardly anybody showed up to uh, his press conference or what have you or his, uh, his, his meeting, but he has since used that. And so this will be uh, an attempt by MAGA uh, to win over voters, to convert voters, to get those voters who are afraid of the fall of Lakeview, to go back to that earlier show, uh, to go Republican. So we're not it's not going to be any easier in the face of this kind of political effort. Do you follow what I'm saying? This is all Mm -hmm. being done by the Republicans in Texas to show how hypocritical Democrats are. But also, do you think that we would be so concerned about how much surveillance people are under if for the last, I mean, however, since 2016, we hadn't been constantly in the background hearing all the time how dangerous people coming over the border are? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think there is this drumbeat and we know, right? We know that this is like a, a MAGA move. It's a whatever, but we still hear it's in the water. People are coming from a dangerous place. They're dan- We don't know who these people are. Um, I watched two, um, two women. Uh, so I, I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old and an 18-year-old. And one of the things I've been trying to accomplish over the last week is there. there's two preschoolers who have a really, really long walk to school. I'm trying to get them shoes that fit. And watching two women who, you know, I don't know if they're my age or whatever, with children similar age to mine, trying to get them to try on as many pairs of shoes as possible till they could find one to fit. It's very hard to watch that. And as a mom, not say like, this is me right? Like this is all of us. We are all just trying to get our four-year-olds to put their goddamn shoes on, right? Like the nation, let's all put our shoes on and get out the house. Um, But I think that, you know, when it's this, when you talk about the big numbers, how many people are coming over the border, when you look at the way that they show it on TV, where it's like, they always do like that headless shot that they usually use to show you fat people at Disney World, but it's just like people streaming across the border. Like they want to convey a sense of the unknown and the hostile and the like, this is too much. And I think for lots of people, we're saying like, yes, it's too much, it's overwhelming, but at the atomic level, it's people, it's families, right? It's, It's nothing we haven't seen before. And I'll, I'll give you two two points in time that we can contrast. So we'll talk about the turn of the century when a lot of people came from Eastern Europe, from Ireland, from Italy, from lots of other places. And, and following that, we had the, the progressive movement. You know, we had the jungle um, up in St. Clair. We had Hull House. We had all of these movements to say we need to raise the floor on the standard of living. Right. That period of time totally changed building codes in cities across the country. It made a mandatory public schooling. It changed child labor. It changed all of these things. So I think the big lesson from that when those folks came was like, we want to raise the floor. Mm-hmm. Middle of the century, we have the Great Migration. All these people come from the South. They come to Black Chicago. We contain them. We don't contain them in police stations and respite centers. We say there are only some neighborhoods you can live in. And there's, there's an overt and a covert threat of violence if you come out of those borders. And so the population density in places like Bronzeville, in, in places now in the south in the south side of Chicago and the west side of Chicago that you know have been decimated by population loss, there was unreal density there. And apartments were being cut up and cut up and cut up to to the point where there were like massive fire code issues. There were health code issues. There were all of these things. But largely the city didn't use its public sector apparatus to raise the floor. But what did happen that was that was really, I guess, transformational and maybe something that's connected to the mutual aid movement that we're seeing now is because white Chicago was hands off with black Chicago, black Chicago was asked to take in people as their neighbors and in many cases as their cousins. And you think about like, you know, you as a member of the press, people like the Chicago Defender, the Chicago Bee, there were ads everywhere saying, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm looking for this person. My cousin just came. We have a job here. We have whatever. There was right from the get-go, and you know, this is not my story to tell, and I'm not an expert in it, but an overt effort to say, these, this is our family. These are our neighbors. And I think you still see some of that, right, in the way that Black Chicago has held together and been resilient through all the things that have happened, because Lord knows so many things have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are two really different stances in how we incorporate new people. Do we think about a charity model? Do we think about them as our neighbors? In both cases, it was an opportunity for the city of Chicago. But it was two very different answers to the question of, of who are folks coming into us. And now as they're coming in, we still have this choice to make. But because of MAGA, because of all of these other things, because of borders and, and international migration, there is this different kind of other 
to them, right? Borders were not the same sort of thing in the 1890s and the 1900s. There were other things going on. But like the border has changed in a fundamental way at how it lives in, in our imaginations and policing and the way we the way we just relate to each other. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I feel that the city is going to struggle for another year, at least. That's what I think is going to happen. I, um, I feel as though that the uh, federal government, the Biden administration has to uh, turn the, the rhetoric around. Uh, on on this issue, and uh, to your earlier point uh, about our attitude, our fear of the border, uh, that has been driven to a large degree by Donald Trump from the moment he announced in 2015 he has sec- successfully uh, turned. Well, it was there was already a loud voice uh, on this from Fox about the border crisis, uh, but he has defined Donald Trump has defined to a large degree how Americans view. Uh, immigrants coming in from the southern border, uh, and that is a driving force in politics. And so the Democrats react; they feel compelled to react. They, oh, this is a crisis. Uh, the, the Republicans are playing politics with this, as opposed to this is an opportunity. Uh, and I, I've seen this on so many fronts with Democrats and Republicans in my lifetime, where Republicans have a strategy of fear. And then the Democrats respond uh, in kind. I think in the Joe Biden and Bill Clinton era with the, um, the, 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 the laws that they changed to incarcerate people uh, for drug use, for possession of drugs, uh, three strikes and you're out, that kind of be tough on crime. And the Democrats hand in hand with welfare, right, which is another with, kind of exactly. economic containment of people. Exactly. And so Democrats being pushed to the right by Republicans. I've seen it happen so many times. This is another moment. And so here we are uh, once again in the, the city of Chicago, the city of New York, other cities through blue cities throughout the country are dealing with an influx of people. They don't have the money. They don't have the capacity. In the case of Chicago, they, for the last 30 years, as we've been talking about, they've been privatizing public services. So there's not even a workforce. That's job it is to uh, deal with new immigrants coming to the city of Chicago. And, uh, and I believe it's incumbent upon the, the, Dem- the national Democrats to take the lead and say we view we're changing our attitude on this posi- on, on this issue. We now view this as an opportunity. So what are they going to do? Are they going to give us money? So we we we're again going back. Money to our is what we need. Okay, so we need money. Yes. What do we need Absolutely. to spend the money on? We need you need to spend the money first of all in setting up shelters so they are out of police stations. You need the money to set up a system. It's so funny that I'm coming up with that. I am the last guy in the world anybody would turn to for a system. Okay, you know what I'm saying? But this is the thing, right? We have to have these conversations with each other. I, One of the best things about being a candidate and lots of things about it suck <laughs> was you get to knock on someone's door and say, hey, what do you think about this thing? We talked about all, I talked about all kinds of things with strangers and people would give me their wackiest ideas for things, right? It was like, it was like nonstop public sector shark tank. But we're talking about crises. So, okay, so this is a moment. We're going to change a bunch of things. So we need to change how housing works in the city. We need more affordable housing. We need crisis housing. We need to be able to absorb people and get them homes and jobs, right? Those are two of the things you talked about when you were talking about sort of success. 
that, that people will be incorporated in. So we currently don't have enough affordable housing and enough accessible affordable housing to kind of bring people in. In the, you know, the 90s and, and onward, we lost a lot of single room occupancy yes. housing. We've got some stations that are just full of single men. We don't have places for people to live. Yeah. For family housing, we don't have a lot either. We're not building anymore. We're building at the top of this. And so that's something that maybe this is an opportunity to do. Well, um, let, me, let me tell you some happy stories. Here's a happy story. Uh, oh. When veterans came home from the war, we yeah, built yeah. federally funded tons of housing. And in New York City, we've got a bunch of housing that went up in like the like the 30s, I guess, or the 40s, like for, to welcome people back from the war. And then we have a bunch of housing that was built in the 50s or 60s where people in the backs of their minds were like, we know that this is for black families. Now, the housing they built for the veterans is in much, much better condition because they built it for people they cared about and they loved. And I think that that's also something that Black Chicago is feeling really wounded about is that any opportunities to offer a hand up have always been at arm's length, which is like a horribly mixed metaphor, but you know I drink when I work the show because um, I'm shy. Um, but we have the opportunity to maybe create new assets, to maybe change some policies, mm -hmm. to change how we provide social services, to empower communities. There are lots of things that we could change now because the crisis, right? If, if the crisis is people are coming, is the, I guess the question is, if the crisis is that people are coming, we need to figure out how to move them to stability as quickly as possible, or is the crisis people are here and we don't know who they are and what to do with them and, and ultimately do we want to welcome them as our neighbors? That yeah. we can decide amongst ourselves, just bullshitting, right? All of us. Well, right now I would say that uh, most people in the city of Chicago I don't know where the city is on this issue. I know there's people who go to meetings and yell. Uh, so you, the, the assumption is that they speak for all their neighbors. I don't know how clear that is. And I know there's a lot of uh, people who go and volunteer, uh, yourself included. I don't know how they speak uh, for their neighbors. So I don't think Chicago's really confronted this. But I'll give you an example of what, like, how this needs today have changed from the needs that existed a year ago. Uh, Bring Chicago Home was a movement that was going to raise real estate taxes in order to build low income or affordable housing in the city of Chicago. And it, I don't think anybody who who was who uh, came up with that idea a year ago or two years ago, whatever it was, was thinking about thousands of asylum seekers coming to town and needing housing. No, but I will tell you that a lot of people that I have seen at Bring Chicago Home rallies, I have also seen delivering food, coordinating on text about medical services, because the idea, Bring Chicago Home is an idea about capacity, mm -hmm. right? And when they were saying, you know, the 51st Ward, all of these people who are out there in our city and we have nowhere to put them, right? They, they were really smart about talking about the people who were affected by it. And again, highlighting many of them are children, many of them are families, um, but also saying this is a systemic issue. We have no dedicated revenue stream to increase this. And I'd like to point out, do you remember what happened when when the referendum was supposed to go um, to make it onto the ballot? A bunch of alders just didn't show up. Some of them were at City Hall. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I remember that. Yes. Samantha oh, Nugent uh, yeah. did not show up. And yeah, it was right. something that she was asked about to the, uh, to the first forum that we had scheduled. She also did not show up to the second one. Um, God, you still love getting those digs in. But I think the idea is that... Um, the bigger picture about things like Bring Chicago Home, about why the radical left couldn't take the mayor's office. Um, I don't know if we've talked, remember the Get Stuff Done pack? 
Because they put $80,000 into my race in the last six weeks, which might have been more than I I raised total, but it was something amazing to make sure that people knew that we need good common sense folks. We're going to take care of services in the city of Chicago and not do these radical things like treatment, not trauma and bring Chicago home. Not realizing that unlocking that money downtown, creating those new policies is what allows us to provide services at the level that we need to in the neighborhoods of Chicago. And now here's the big question that that ultimately decides, are are we in a position to change, which is, you know, Michael Sachs gave a lot of money to that PAC. Is he much farther from the mayor's office than he was before? I'm not sure. I mean, I know that's a horrible thing to say, but I think the rich people in Chicago, we talk about them all the time. They still always have some degree of soft power in deciding how much we are allowed to change the environmental conditions, how much we're allowed to change the playing field. And it is so hard to play a good game when someone else is setting the rules. And so when you say crisis or opportunity, what I see is an opportunity to change the environment, to change the rules of the game, to knock down some walls, to open up some doors so that we can actually make good policy and deliver good services. Okay. So the well-to-do of Chicago, I essentially lump, for lack of a better term, I call it mainstream Chicago. It's well-to-do. It's their. uh, I love that billionaires are mainstream to you. Well, they're just they control. uh, Like if you have have like I have read the media in Chicago for the last forty years. Oh yeah. Realize there's a consensus, and that consensus it's like just you talked about get stuff done. Pack that was the. (laughs) They tell us who to be afraid of today. What's that? They tell us who to be afraid of. Today. Yeah, so the get stuff done pack, right? In there, they they divided the city. It was it was a pack funded by some of the wealthiest people in the city of Chicago to get you to view uh, politicians in two camps. One, those who get stuff done that matter to you, they are workhorses, okay, and the others are show horses. Those are people who just posture for the media to get stuff done that you don't want or need. So now we have a housing crisis. That's what they're, okay. Where's the get stuff done packed for dealing with 13,500 asylum seekers? The more interesting question is where are the people who they said were dangerous radicals who just wanted to give speeches? And I will tell you, they are bringing food and clothes and medicine and school registration forms to these people while the, the practical get stuff done folks are, you know, I'm not sure where they are. Yeah. Uh, They're writing op-eds maybe. I don't know. I I would say um, there's so much uh, built in. This would be a whole column to write. When I say mainstream Chicago, there's so much built into that. There's like the concept of what's mainstream and the concept of what's alien and the concept of like uh, what's permissible discussion and debate and what is off off limits because it'll never pass anyway. It's unrealistic. Uh, and I've been watching the confines are so limiting. It, what's changed over the last six years is that the leftist voice in this town has become more pronounced in terms of the city council. Uh, and they're finally openly discussing proposals that had been like thrown into the rules committee if they were ever suggested. You know what I mean? But a crisis, right? We had COVID. Let's not forget we had a crisis. And in that crisis, every one of us felt isolated and fragile. And every one of us 
had to sit in our homes and reckon with our dependency on others in a very different way. And it made people come out of their homes and feel differently towards the idea of, of a public sector and public health differently. Yeah. Now, for some people, that meant them, sent them into bunker mentality. But for other people, they realized, you know, wow, this is the house of cards. And far left ideas suddenly started to feel like, okay, we've stripped away so much of what's needed to deal with crisis. We have to admit, you know, all of the things, climate change, pandemics, homelessness, like we got to look it in the face and say, what are we going to do about it? And so what's this crisis going to change? I hope this crisis will say we need to build back the capacity. So if we see people coming quickly, if we're in this situation where not only do we have all these people, you know, 13,000 people who can just show up, but of the, you know, 81,000 who are in shelters and police stations, 20% of them are in the stations, right? 20% of them are not even integrated into the temporary respite system. So our crisis management mechanism is in crisis. This is the moment to talk about capacity. Well, uh, we are now uh, almost out of time. Uh, you raised the issue of COVID. Uh, so I'll close with a brief uh, nod to a new professor at Harvard, uh, Professor Lori Lightfoot. <laughs> sometimes about Professor Lori Lightfoot. Uh, and uh, she's teaching a class at Harvard, a government class. Uh, she's a lecturer, I guess. She's officially a college lecturer. Uh, and... Uh, a graduate level class on health policy and leadership at Harvard University got underway and she's going to be using real life examples. Uh, and I'm just, I'm still absorbing. I know this is a lot to bring up at the end of a show, but I'm still absorbing. And this shit wouldn't fly at Yale. I, <laughs> oh my God, listeners, I silenced Ben Jarofsky. I did it. Oh my God! Do I have like do I have an unusual number of guests who are graduates of Yale? I I think I do for some reason. Uh, I once once drove through New Haven where Yale is located, and I had a piece of pizza. It was delicious. Um, but um, Lori Lightfoot teaching lessons in leadership. Yes, yeah, Lori Lightfoot teaching lessons in leadership related to COVID, and I, I realize I'm out of the mainstream on this one, Denali. I going back to the mainstream i realized that last week uh when i was very critical of dr awadi uh after brandon johnson fired her i couldn't understand why there was an outcry uh over her being fired the former health commissioner and then uh, people got back to me all kinds of people got back to me and let me know that they liked dr awadi they liked the the way she handled herself during uh the COVID crisis and i began to realize i am really outside I am really outside, just like the large group of people that look like me and talk like me and just <laughs> that you think I was a part of. I really felt alienated from because I thought the city's uh, we made fun of the city's response to COVID. We, it was a, like. It was all, all over the map. Remember when they when Mayor Lori Lightfoot, I wonder if she's going to mention this in her class, close the lakefront parks. She got yeah. mad through a hissy fit and closed the, the lakefront parks. And then it turned out later on, oops, that uh, it was probably the, the safest place to be during COVID was outside. We closed the parks, but we made sure we opened the restaurants for Valentine's Day and the Super Bowl. And I think this is your point again, right? Who Who is yelling and screaming about these things? I mean, for me, I'm okay with 
with the firing. I think when you step up to be the, the commissioner, you step up to be a visible public figure for an administration, it's a hard job and, and you hold public trust. And so sometimes, you know, the public needs to see someone run out of town on a rail. But I will say that for public health, it is a failure as a public health official when you see that the most vulnerable people carry the most privately. Yeah. And so when you saw, you know, people with young children, people with disabilities, elderly people, communities where lots of people were sick and there were times where infection rates were, were highest in our Latin communities and, pop, and, and communities where lots of people died. Our black communities lost so many people and so many vulnerable elderly people, right? All of those people were asked to personally and privately change their lives to manage a pandemic that was a public health issue. And I think that is the problem. But the people who love Dr. Arwadi, they'd say things like, well, you know, I didn't get COVID or I only got a mild case and I, uh, I, I went out to dinner on Valentine's Day. So like they, they were happy because she gave them the level of safety and precaution that allowed mainstream Chicago to proceed with business as usual a little bit. So of course they, of course they, they really liked that. It was, it was a response that was perfectly calibrated to those folks, and that's why you worry about that feedback loop. If politicians are only listening to those folks, they're reading the papers, they're talking to them, they're going to meetings with them, and those activists aren't breaking through and saying, "Well, can I talk to the aide? Can I talk to the secretary?" If they're not storming city council for bring Chicago home, yeah. you know, the Johnson administration has a weekly meeting with mutual aid organizations throughout the city to sit and and let people talk about all of these things, big and little, and ask questions directly to somebody who is responsible. And I think that's new and different. But they have to hear from other people besides that closed loop. And, and you're right that that voice in Chicago is very loud. And maybe in order to have an opportunity and to really change the playing field, we have to get those people to be just a little bit quieter. Yeah. All right, Denali. Uh, and uh, we've run out of time for today's show. Uh, I'm going to hold off on uh, launching into a discourse on in the coming COVID crisis that's coming. I have this feeling is coming again since uh, uh, I just got this weird sense that we're going to be right back. Nothing has ever changes. We're going to be right back. Denali and I don't I think and can we'll you make be- me a promise for tonight. So you're talking to the mayor tonight. That is correct. Can you promise me that you will make a joke about how many people are sharing bathrooms at the police station in Chicago because of his ongoing campaign joke about how many folks shared a bathroom in his home growing up. Will you, will you try to work that in for me? I can't make that promise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make a promise. That, that's, that, that's really a, a promise. No promise. I won't ask for a promise. No, no. I, uh, what I, is the I number make promises, that are sharing? Say, so at the 17th district, which has one of the lowest shelter counts, right? We got 56 people sharing a bathroom. There are stations where there are hundreds of people in a police station and in tents outside. So we're going to talk about people sharing a bathroom, kids getting ready for school in the morning, uh, people managing their basic needs. 56 people sharing a bathroom. Wow. And and I know the mayor, what was it, 12? 12, yeah. Yeah, 50 people sharing a bathroom. Uh, I'm not quite sure I'll make that joke tonight, uh, Denali, but you're more than welcome to show up and make it uh, for me. Uh, everybody, hey, Ben, you make the joke that'll really. No, no, well, I made the joke now. See, this is me making the commitment. I've said it in public. I've made the joke. Okay. There you go. I All did right. it. And, uh, and you know what? Mayor, Mayor Johnson, I love you. Um, uh, you know, hang in there. 
<laughs> yes, the joke was made by Denali, ladies. The joke was made by, by Denali, not by Ben. The fifty-six person to a bathroom joke. That just in itself, I just thought about what you said. Like the kids are going off to school in the morning, so it's like school. It's what a they in school. They've opened up the schools for the asylum seekers, but we're not quite committed to them <laughs> living here. Wow, it's I don't know. I'd say treat change your treat asylum seekers as though they were Amazon employees. Different <laughs> world. Treat asylum seekers as though they were the Olympics. It'll be a whole all of you mainstream Chicago were board Daly's bandwagon to bring the Olympics to Chicago to turn over the parks. The Olympics. Why don't you have that same attitude about asylum seekers? All right, uh, Denali, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. It's a blast talking to you. And uh, you're going to still be here. I know you got a, a new job, but you're still committed to being uh, coming on my show. Oh, I got buggy like once every four weeks. You're still committed to that, correct? I am committed to you. Very good. Okay, I got that as a promise. We're going to keep it. All right, Denali, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, I now will go rest my vocal cords. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> it is true. Uh, tonight I will be, uh, Maya and I will be hosting Mayor Brandon Johnson uh, at the Promontory. Uh, show starts at 6.30. The mayor's people tell me he's going to show up definitely by 6.45. Uh, so that we'll see if that's a promise that gets broken. Uh, I'm sure he'll be there at 6.45. I'm just... You know me, I'm always a uh, gloom and doom, thinking the worst things that could possibly happen. But he'll be there at 645, as people tell me, uh, and we'll have a robust conversation about where the city is at right now, what his thoughts are being mayor. Does he wish he could go back to being Cook County Commissioner and leave the job to someone else? Uh, by the way, do, I still read Paul Vallis. I just want to tell you this, Denali. I still read Paul Vallis, writes stuff for this conservative uh, website. And that dude is <laughs> I go really dodged a bullet with that one. All right, Denali, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Also, I want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job as he always does. And I think Denali will agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember to catch First Tuesdays with Maya and Ben tonight at the Promontory in Hyde Park. Find more Ben Jarofsky content at chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on all your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.